and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morkin. Today on the show... You know, people are living with it day to day and it is an ongoing, often deteriorative process. So the goals you set with people have to be more reasonable than that. Depression and multiple sclerosis and how those with MS are more likely to experience mental health problems. And the way we diagnose psychiatric disorders. Is the current system outdated and what aren't these diagnoses taking into account? That's today on Think Health. Imagine you're going on a road trip and you're driving from Sydney to Adelaide. It's a 14-hour drive, so you have to set up a plan before you kick off. You're with a friend or family member, so you agree one of you will drive the first half and the other the second. You also reckon you'll get tired so you decide to book a motel somewhere to sleep overnight. Now, imagine if you don't have these luxuries. You're driving on your own, so you don't have anyone to take turns with behind the wheel. And on top of that, it's not a holiday, and you actually have a deadline to meet, so you have to be there in that 14 hours. For interstate truck drivers, this is a reality, and it's their job. 72.5% of our freight in Australia is transported by these truck drivers, and research headed by Taryn Chalmers at the University of Technology Sydney has found they're not only more at risk to physical health conditions such as cardiovascular disease, but to mental health disorders such as anxiety and depression. Quite a few drivers, truck drivers that I spoke to, had experienced people committing suicide in front of their trucks. My father was a truck driver. I had never even really thought, I hadn't even entertained that idea before. And having drivers kind of sit there and give me these you know, horrid stories of not being able to, to stop their truck in time, that kind of resonated with me. And I thought, this is going to be my lifelong passion. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to help people who need help. And that's where I am now. When you're speaking to one of these drivers, how are they... How are they kind of recounting that to you? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. I was quite surprised at the almost apathy. I don't know if it's that these drivers are surrounded by this male mentality of, of being tough and not expressing your emotion, but so I had three drivers talk to me about it, and out of the three, only one of them really showed any emotion. And even then, it was more emotion for, for the person's family. It wasn't so much a kind of internalised emotion of being like, holy hell, I've just dealt with something really intense. It was more about the poor people, which is very honourable and altruistic, but I feel like they're really missing that they, you know, are kind of detrimented by something like this too. Are these long-distance truck drivers? Yeah, so I only interviewed, we call them long-haul drivers. A lot of these drivers drove from Sydney to Western Australia to Perth and back, and they spend the vast majority of their time alone. I mean, there's often not even a radio when they're in the middle of, you know, Australia, so... They spend a lot of their time, you know, in these kind of monotonous driving conditions where there's no one around, there's no one to bounce off. And I use that term both anecdotally and neuroscientifically. Being able to chat to someone improves your mood a lot. But these poor drivers are really neglected. They're under a lot of financial strain. 
a large part of my research is trying to dispel that stigma around opening up. You know, males are less likely to divulge any information that may infer vulnerability. They are less likely to report depression, to talk about anxiety. And even that kind of instilled in me, the way they recounted these horrid events, instilled in me this sense that they still don't think it's okay to show any emotion. They still think they need to keep it inside, which is why I spend so much time going to talk to Australia Post and TNT and heads of big trucking companies and say, look, you need to be able to chat about this. Peer support is one of the most important endogenous mechanisms we have for dispelling things like depression and anxiety, and yet no one wants to talk about it. Are those the two issues that really presented themselves as the main ones? They did. I kind of had two focuses in my research. Firstly, I was looking to quantitate the levels of depression and anxiety in these drivers because there had only ever been one other study done. And I thought to myself, you know, coming from a family, a very kind of blokey family with brothers and my dad, I thought, how can I get this message that these drivers are depressed across to their bosses? I thought, well, what if I link it to a really common disease that they're trying to fight? And I know a lot of transport industries at the moment are really interested in cardiovascular disease. So I thought, what if I can link depression to cardiovascular disease? That way they might take it a bit more seriously. And that's what I've done. We have two nervous systems in our body. We have an autonomic nervous system, which is in control of things like your breathing, your heart rate. And then you've got your somatic voluntary nervous system, which is responsible for everything else pretty much. Within your autonomic nervous system, you have two branches, parasympathetic, which slows everything down, and your sympathetic, which increases the speed of everything, your heart rate, breathing rate. So I was able to show that people who had long-standing depression, and depending on their severity, they were directly linked to a withdrawal of their parasympathetic nervous system. Now, what that means, in colloquial terms, is that drivers who were depressed were less able to change their heart rate. Now, this is a really important concept because your body's ability to constantly either increase or decrease your heart rate depending on your external environment is vital to living. We have to have that. So the longer you had depression, the less able you were to control your heart rate and thus you have a significantly increased chance of cardiovascular disease. And then I guess to apply that to these people are driving for like ridiculous lengths of time. That's exactly it. I mean, probably the crux of the argument here is that only 2.47% of the vehicles on Australian roads are trucks, and yet they're involved in 17.96% of all fatal accidents. Their incidence of heart disease is high, and I mean, it accounts for roughly 10% of all trucking accidents. So by linking not only cardiovascular disease to impaired driving and potential risks, I was also able to say, look, the precursor to that cardiovascular disease may have a mental link. It may be depression. Where's the intervention to try and tackle the problem beginning? For me, I'm looking at a prevention is better than a cure kind of idea in that if we can improve the mental health, and not just in transport industry, but in all industries in Australia, if we can improve their mental health profile, their chances of developing cardiovascular disease will reduce. So I'm more about talking to companies about improving mental health workplace options, toolbox talks, which is a big one that I've been pushing at the moment, improving things like access to psychiatrists and cognitive behavioural therapists. What's toolbox talk? So toolbox talk is um, an amazing kind of strategy. It covers everything. It's not just mental health, but this idea where you get all your workers together on site one day a week or one day a fortnight, and you discuss everything that relates to work that isn't directly work. So things like OH&S, you know, not taking your work home with you, safety, ensuring that people understand that there's access to, to doctors on site or there's gyms. It's kind of this holistic approach to 
being an employee and being an employer that removes itself from, you know, the monotony of do this, A plus B equals C. It's all health-related, mental health-related, and they're really great. They destigmatize a lot of things, not just mental illnesses, but illnesses in general. Across the board, how does the transport industry, as an industry, how does it fare in terms of the way that it does offer mental health support for those who work in that industry? They're, they are trying. That's probably where I'm. Where, what I can say. There has been a lot of push in the last few years for mental health. I mean, there was a recent Price Waterhouse Coopers report that found across the board in Australia, businesses lose $10.9 billion annually for failing to address mental health within the workplace. In particular, Australia Post has been really good. Sydney Trains and Transport New South Wales are very proactive when it comes to mental health. But unfortunately, the vast majority of drivers are either self-employed, which means they have to look after it themselves, or alternatively work for small businesses that simply don't see the financial feasibility of introducing mental health schemes. Can you really prepare someone to be like, say, they're a truck driver or going to become a truck driver and be like, you're going to be on the road for 15 hours, you're not going to have anybody to speak to. Is there any way to, I guess, mentally prepare them for the fact that they just do not have anyone to converse with? At all? Like, or that's kind of like illogical to think that that's a way to solve the problem. Speaking a little anecdotally, but from <laughs> my father, he said that when he first entered the industry, they were very well paid. And everyone kind of knew what you were doing when you were truck driver. You, long hours by yourself, away from your family. But there was good remuneration, you know, a lot of money. Nowadays, with the introduction of OHS and an increase in things like break times needed, companies are putting so much pressure on truck drivers that there's simply not the money in it. So there's not even the payoff of saying, well, you know, at least you get paid well. They don't get paid very well. So at the moment, as far as preparation goes, it's kind of like, sorry, this is your job. Does he relate to any of it? He does. Again, I think in a way where he will always say that he is fine, as many men in their late 50s, early 60s do. But even talking to my father, you know, his ability to open up and to chat about things has risen exponentially in the last five or six years. And that's just from me talking about the biochemistry of depression and anxiety and and mental health and, and all those kinds of things. So the end goal of my research has always been to implement a mental health policy in every trucking company in Australia. We're one of the only countries in the world that don't really have that. And considering that we utilise more truck drivers than most other countries in the planet, considering how wide and vastly spread our metropolitan hubs are, it's astounding to me that we haven't taken a more progressive approach to mental health. I think that's really been the driving force of me understanding the more you chat about something in the general public, the more people will understand. Taryn Chalmers, Associate Lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Is the way we diagnose psychiatric disorders out of date? An event held at the University of Technology, Sydney, brought together professionals from a range of backgrounds, both clinical and otherwise, to address this question. 
and also look at what Australia can take from other countries, such as the US and UK, when it comes to mental health diagnosis. Martin Pickerskill from the University of Edinburgh and Karen McConnell from the University of Technology, Sydney, join me in studio to chat to some of the most pressing conversations that were brought up. So when I think about psychiatric diagnosis, I'm primarily talking about the kinds of diagnostic entities like, say, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia that you might find in two primary handbooks, basically. So the first is the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, uh, the DSM, (laughs) as it's helpfully shortened to, um, and the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases. The DSM is probably the one that has most kind of cultural traction, if you like. So, for instance, in a UK context, if a person goes to their doctor um, and says, I think I have this and brings out their kind of printout from the Internet or whatever, it's more likely to be based on a a DSM diagnostic rather than an ICD one, for instance. And I guess, Karen, to bring in the legal Mm -hmm. perspective too, why is it important to have these categories to distinguish between different mental disorders? Well, a really important point is that this is a clinical diagnosis. So this is primarily used in a sort of medical setting, but then it also just blurs into other areas of life. So for law, I'm a human rights and discrimination lawyer, and discrimination law, for example, has its own definition of disability. But what you find in the case law is that these sort of handbooks and manuals and classifications of disabilities start to sort of infiltrate the case law and impact how people both see themselves and how other people see them in relation to their legal rights. And how exactly might that play out? Well, for example, one case study I've done is of school students with um, disabilities that manifest in challenging behaviour. If a school student wants to say, I've been discriminated against because of my behaviour, that has to be because of a disability. So when you start to have to show evidence of that, the person is really not supposed to need a diagnosis, but it's obvious that that would be strong evidence of it. And so people start looking for diagnoses in order to access rights. But one, I mean, just one initial problem with it is that a diagnosis is a very narrow and sort of individual reading of a disability. So what that means is that you're starting to look at the person as being the problem. They have got something about them, a characteristic about them that doesn't fit their environment. So for example, the school student, uh, you know, is not able to function in a school environment. If you're looking at a diagnosis, you're starting to say, well, they can't pay attention or they can't do this. Whereas if you take a more sort of human rights approach, you'd be saying, what is it about that person in that context that doesn't work? You know, as a sort of someone who's in favour of, you know, these protective laws, I really want to see students or whoever it is that's bringing their claim for there to be some attention on the environment or on the context. And a diagnosis takes the focus away from the context back to the individual. Martin, one of the things that was also covered in this event as well was looking at what Australia can take from the US in this regard. Why exactly might we look to the US and the way that they diagnose So for me, what was interesting is to see what Australia is already doing with these US diagnostic systems. And if there's resonance, for instance, with the UK, where even though technically we don't use the DSM, um, actually we do in many, many ways. And then to kind of see, well, 
is that right? Are the current uses of it appropriate? Um, and I'm, I mean that kind of clinically, culturally, economically. So increasingly over time, the emphasis in US mental health has shifted from a, a kind of a psychoanalytic approach to a, a neurobiological one. Mm-hmm. So in the 80s and 90s, there was a real push for brain scanning techniques, for instance, to examine what the neural correlates of things like schizophrenia might be. As these kinds of technologies have become more sophisticated, the kinds of definitions within the DSM have been seen as actually quite clunky and overgeneralized now. So whilst once they were seen as this wonderful new kind of way of producing highly standardized and well-characterized populations, now they're too heterogeneous for the scientific techniques that are being used. So there's a a kind of a move away from those bigger constructs to emphasize symptoms rather than disorders per se. So for instance, looking at low mood rather than major depressive disorder and looking at what neurological pathways, for instance, might underlie that. And why would that be beneficial to look at those as opposed to larger issues at hand? The people doing that kind of research think that the mind is what the brain does. And so you need to understand the basic neurological circuitry in order to get a real sense of what a disorder is and how it can be intervened in. Just commenting on that idea of a sort of neurological model, there's been really amazing and interesting neuroscientific research in recent years, which has really shifted anyway the sorts of conversations we're having about brains and environments. But I do think there can be this tendency to think of brains in isolation. And so for people who study societies as well as individuals, for me, I want that brain to be acknowledged as embedded in an actual body, a situated body, someone who may be in poverty or in some other situation that impacts on their functioning in society. And then, of course, the broader question as well of, you know, what other things are impacting on that person and just keeping an eye on how they do filter through and that they don't overlook things like race and gender bias or poverty and disadvantage that absolutely shape the way people live their lives. Martin Pickerskill, Wellcome Trust Reader in Social Studies of Biomedicine in Edinburgh Medical School, and Karen O'Connell, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. People with multiple sclerosis are three times more likely to experience depression than those without MS. Ian Kneebone is a clinical psychologist from the University of Technology, Sydney, and does a lot of work in this space, and says though treatments and therapies tend to be administered the same, experiences of depression can be quite different. Ian spoke to Think Health reporter Miles Herbert. There's a lot of feeling of that it's inevitable, So we did a longitudinal study where we looked at people with depression with MS and we told them if we thought they were depressed and if they wanted to see somebody to do about it, they should contact their GP and so forth. And then we saw them a year later and most hadn't contacted their GP. Now, we're not precisely looked and asked them why they didn't follow up on the diagnosis, but we do know from qualitative studies and interviewing that a lot of people think, well, of course, I'm going to be depressed. I've got MS. It's inevitable. 
So besides feeling helpless, why else would they not seek treatment for depression? Well, I think there's the same thing. A lot of people with depression in the community who aren't affected by neurological illnesses don't seek treatment because of stigma, perhaps. It might even be financial concerns of going to see a psychological therapist, although there are Medicare-funded and bulk bill practices and so forth. So yeah, like walk me through how you might treat someone who doesn't have multiple sclerosis compared to someone who does have the disease. Okay, so someone who does have the disease, if they're early stage, they don't have many cognitive problems or physical problems and so on, you pretty much treat them the same way as somebody else. But once people are challenged uh, physically and cognitively, you need to modify, for instance, the activities you ask them to do because they may not be able to do the things they used to do. So when you're doing something called behavioural activation, when you're trying to get people back in line of doing things that they can still do and get pleasant experiences and mastery from, uh, you'd have to be very careful about the tasks you set people with that. Also, sometimes when you're talking about, say, coping with things, with somebody who's losing concentration and so on, have to be less abstract in the way you talk to people and so on, so more concrete, and talk about dealing with the challenge of MS rather than why they have to have the health care. I understand that there is a link between pain and depression. Is that it? Is it the pain or is it the disease? Is the actual MS, like the lesions within the body, do you think causing the neurological association with depression? I think that's a big challenge. There there is almost certainly some organic pathologies and brain changes that contribute to depression. And also, then there also, as we say, there's very clear adjustment challenges that people make. So it's probably partly organic for some people and partly psychological and more or less for different individuals. What's interesting, I guess, about psychological treatments is there's studies, not particularly in MS, but generally that show that if you do psychological therapies, there can be brain changes as well. So just because it's physical doesn't mean you treat it with medication. Just because it's psychological doesn't mean you can treat it psychologically. And that's why sometimes a combination works best, particularly with more severely uh, disordered people. And also, I know associated with depression, there's this feeling of hopelessness, you know? I know with MS, there's no necessarily, like, straight up, I can walk into a hospital and get a cure. Does that play a role in in their association with depression, this idea of, like, oh, I have MS and, and I'll, you know, probably have it forever? It is one thing that isn't curable at this point in time. And a sense of hopelessness is a very important point to make because... Hopelessness has got a big connection with uh, suicidal ideas and suicidal behaviours and acts. And I think that's a real warning sign when people have that that sort of presentation for us. It's very important to deal with that. And it's kind of like if you make your whole world your MS, and that's a deteriorative condition as most often it is, where's that going to lead you? And do you need to make it your whole world? So, for instance, someone who's feeling very hopeless will stop doing everything that they used to do because what's the point? I'm going to get MS. It's just going to get worse and worse. Whereas someone else has said, okay, I'm going to live in the moment. I'm going to enjoy the things I can still do while I can do. And I'm going to plan for my future so it makes it as comfortable and as much as I can. People with MS probably can't go see their GP or some of them at least might not be able to go see the doctor. Do you make house visits? How how does you go about that? Oh yeah, there is ability to do uh, house calls. I think even under Medicare, as long as you're doing face-to-face treatments. One of the exciting things I think about Medicare is we're hoping, or if it hasn't happened already, that people are allowed to do uh, over the internet, so Skype type therapy and so on. And that's a huge boon for people with MS because often they've been in jobs where they understand IT, they've used computers and stuff, they're computer literate, and this saves a whole lot of access issues if they're severely disabled. And also, you know, you can tape those things so 
they can go over them so they can remember things. So uh, I think the technology is going to be a great assist to psychological therapy for people with MS. What are your challenges as a psychologist? Well, I think general challenges dealing with things that may perhaps affect you or your family and so on, um, that you know we're all vulnerable to physical illness. So that's a particular challenge. In terms of the provision of therapy, I think it's dealing with the fact that people have, as you say, a deteriorative course almost certainly. For instance, if I, in my practice I saw someone whose wife had left him and uh, he was very upset at the time, you know, you, you could provide him with therapy and he'd go off at the sunset into a new relationship and so on. That doesn't happen with MS. You know, people are living with it day to day and it is an ongoing, often deteriorative process. So the goals you set with people have to be more reasonable in that and you've very much got to allow the very real grief for the losses that are there for all to see. Are there success stories, though? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that's the reason we'd provide these therapies because we do know that they work for people despite the very real challenges of MS. Ian Kneebone, Head of Discipline in Clinical Psychology at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Miles Herbert. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.